This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Life at Death's Door by Anne Teato and Steve Spence. I'm standing in one of the tombs set around the spectacular circle of Lebanon in London's famous Highgate Cemetery. Highgate was one of seven large cemeteries known as the Magnificent Seven that was built around London from 1833 to 1841 to alleviate a major crisis in burial space. And it is a brilliant example of the Victorian attitude to death. As for their attitude to dealing with anything unfortunate, you should see their sewage pumping stations. <laughs> They're gorgeous! The Victorians' outlook on death and dying was so very different from our own. Of course, in those days, many more people died young, and the risk of dying before adulthood was very high. As Christians, the Victorians held strong convictions about the eternal soul and the resurrection of the body. And so they were very used to death. And in a sense, they not only embraced it, they celebrated it. They built tombs and mausoleums in cemeteries like this one that are splendid and inventive in both conception and architecture. Whole families would spend time visiting their deceased relative and actually enjoy the experience, even taking picnics with them. Now, I find that a bit creepy, but I'm not the only one. Then again, it's not hard to believe in the supernatural when you are walking around the catacombs or threading your way through the sinister, gnarly and twisted trees. Uh, can, can we go now? It's getting a bit spooky here. But if this magnificent necropolis epitomises how the Victorians dealt with the subject, I'd like to know what changed. When and why, for instance, did we stop embracing death and start being scared of it? What is it they don't tell us about death that makes us frightened? Whether you want to talk about it or whether you don't, three things are assured. We will all die, our physical body will need to be disposed of, and our families and friends will need to grieve. Some of us can go all Victorian, take these things in our stride and sort them out with comparative ease. The rest of us, well, we're all a bit bewildered. So be brave. Come with us on this quest as we ask what don't we know about death in the 21st century? What are our options and choices? And what's likely to be in store for our future? Hopping off the twig. Kick the bucket. Snuffing it. The final curtain. Starting a worm farm. Six feet under. Staring down the lid. Taking your last breath. Death. We have no shortage of names for it, so the first thing we did was to ask people what they thought about it. I'd like to be cremated and fired into uh, the air in a rocket. Cremation as a statue. I would rather they didn't spend an absolute fortune on a funeral because I think it's a complete waste. As Pope Paul VI once said... Somebody should tell us right at the start of our lives that we are dying. Then... We might live life to the limit every minute of every day. 
do it, I say. Whatever you want to do, do it now. There are only so many tomorrows. I love cake, and I love going to cafes. Here's an unusual one. It's called the Death Cafe, and it's run by an amazing chap called John Underwood. So I want to know what exactly is the Death Cafe? It's an idea that comes from continental Europe and there there's a tradition of meeting in public places to talk about stuff and so there's a cafe philo which is a philosophical cafe and a cafe scientifique which is obviously a scientific cafe and both of those have spread around the world and people do them quite quite regularly but there was a guy in switzerland a swiss sociologist called bernard cretas and he came up with the idea of a cafe motel and that was a space where people would gather together to talk about death and dying. And he did these um, for a number of years in Switzerland. And then he did the first one in Paris. And um, there was a small piece in the independent newspaper around November 2010. And I read it and I was kind of electrified with excitement. I'd already wanted to do some work around death and specifically something about talking about death. And as soon as I saw it, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And so at the Death Cafe, people just come together and talk about death and, and dying in a safe and comfortable environment. And we've got kind of four guiding principles. So for us, the Death Cafe is a conversation about death. And it's not done uh, for profit. We're not trying to make money out of it. We're very open space and so we're committed to not leading people to any sort of product or particular conclusion or particular course of action. We start where people are at and we just let people talk about where they're at and, and say what they want and just dedicate some time to exploring that subject. So our third principle is that we're always respectful to everybody's views. Um, you know, we don't mind if you're Christian or agnostic or atheist, everyone is welcome as long as they don't um, force their views on other people. And our fourth principle is that there's always tea and cake. English people in particular are quite reserved and, you know, shy. But um, when death is talked about, that kind of mask tends to slip away. And as Bernard Cretas put it, people are born in authenticity. So they say the most beautiful and moving things are things that I personally feel sort of privileged to be in the presence of. And so it's that quality of dialogue and the feeling that people get a lot from it. And some people might consider it quite a morbid activity or that it's quite heavy. Um, it's not, the dialogue is, is really fun, uh, lively, uh, there's a lot of laughter and generally has the feeling of a family gathering where everyone's relaxed and they're just telling stories and people just tell it as it is and it's just wonderful. I think probably everyone thinks about death to a certain degree. In our society, we don't have the time, we don't create the space for people to talk to each other about it. Some people come along and they get really excited and it's not uncommon for them to go and start a death cafe themselves or to try and offer it 
to their community. Some people stay in touch, you know, we've got social media like Facebook and whatnot. So yeah, but some people just like they come and, you know, that's it. They enjoy it, I presume. Uh, and, and, you know, then it's, it's finished for them and that's fine as well because like you say, you know, there's no, we're not, we're not sort of aggressively promoting this. A lot of it is about creating a, a safe space. So we try and have a nice environment. We'll have candles or maybe someone like music. It'll smell nice and be tidy. And then you've got the food and drinks. We'll have, you know, nice coffee and homemade cakes. Any caterer will tell you that people eat a lot more at a funeral than at a wedding. So that's about creating safety. And then you've got a facilitator who's someone who's skilled at leading groups and also is comfortable to talk about death and dying and comfortable being open to people's different perspectives and then we just allow people to talk. I think death can be so potent, such a moment of discovery and healing and transformation and very beautiful and so there's part of me which recognises that about it and doesn't dread it in perhaps the way that I might have a decade ago. You can follow the Death Cafe on Twitter and Facebook or check out www.deathcafe.com. Thank you, John, but I think I'll parcel the death by chocolate. Health is merely the slowest possible rate at which a person can die. <laughs> Most of us learn about death from the television, the news, fiction programmes and shock documentaries. But it doesn't really happen like that for most of us. What about planning our funeral? What about making a will? As I'm lingering in my hospital bed, dying of old age, I shall write it all out exactly how I want it. But what if you don't get the time? Joe Levinson, Director of Communications for the National Council of Palliative Care and the Dying Matters Coalition, told us how eager the government are to change the public's attitude to death, dying and bereavement. What is Dying Matters? The Dying Matters Coalition came about as a result of the government's National End of Life Care Strategy, which was published in 2008. And it made a number of findings and a number of recommendations. And one of its findings was there was a, a real taboo about talking about dying in England. And as, as a result, many of us weren't actually making our wishes known. We weren't planning for the future. And so the National Council for Palliative Care was asked to set up quite a broad coalition to try and break that taboo, try and encourage more and more people to think more openly, to talk more openly about their wishes and to think about the sort of end of life care they'd want. How do people find out about you? We promote Die Matters for a range of means. We've got a website which is very well visited. Um, we're on social media, so Facebook and Twitter. We do quite a lot of public facing work because we're all about changing public attitudes. We undertake media work, um, we engage with the public, and we really encourage our coalition members to do what they can to engage with their local communities, to spread the word, so that more and more individuals, more and more organisations know about Dying Matters, know why we exist, and are able to join in our efforts to try and get people to talk more openly about end-of-life issues. How do you aim to change people's attitudes to death, dying and bereavement? If they talk more openly about dying, it doesn't make it more likely to happen. What it does make more likely to happen is them being able to have their wishes met. And they might be wishes about the sort of care they get. Um, it might be wishes after they've died, the sort of funeral they'd want, making sure people have got a will, 
making sure people have considered whether they want to register as organ donors. Um, and that's really what Dying Matters is all about, trying to break down those barriers, break down the taboo, and encourage people to, to set out their wishes while they're still able to. What feedback have you had from people who have used your services? We know that um, only about a third of people have discussed their end of life wishes with somebody close to them. We know that around half of people haven't written a will. So although there are some encouraging signs, it's a long way to go still before everyone is ready to talk about it and to make end of life plans. Why are people so reluctant to talk about death and dying? I think for many people it feels a long way off. Um, it's something for tomorrow, for mañana. We know people are very fearful about dying. They're fearful of, of talking about dying. They're fearful of dying in hospital. They're fearful of, of not dying in hospital. Um, and I, th I think that fear really feeds through to the reluctance to talk about dying. And I think it does feel a long way off for many of us. And, and in many ways we should celebrate the fact we're not obsessed by dying in this country. On the whole, we've got good infant mortality rates, much improved. People live on the whole to a, a healthy age. Um, most of us are untouched directly by war or conflict. But because of that, I think we're, we're not confronted by death in the same way that we have been in times gone by, which is great, but a downside of that is we've probably got a slightly less mature attitude to talk about dying and to make our wishes known. We think it's never going to happen, but of course it will do. Do you think that fear comes from a lack of knowledge? Not a lack of knowledge that we're all going to die. I think, to an extent, a lack of knowledge that actually putting plans in place can be a relatively simple process. Probably a lack of knowledge about the consequences of not doing so. I think many people probably aren't quite aware what the implications can be, for example, if you don't write a will or if you don't make your wishes known about the sort of care you would want. I think lots of people just either don't want to think about these things or just assume it will all sort itself out. And the stark reality is it doesn't always all sort itself out, at least if you don't make your wishes known. Is there a lot of pressure for people to conform to traditions? I think there's certainly some pressure on people to conform to traditions. I think many people may also not know the range of options that are actually open to them. It doesn't have to be a, a traditional funeral or a traditional ceremony if somebody doesn't want that. Actually, one size doesn't fit all, and you really do have a, a lots of scope these days to, to put your own mark on, on a funeral, and, and it may be many people aren't aware of that. Is there such a thing as a good death? We, we can't escape the fact that all of us do die, however much some of us may wish to, to live forever. Um, and I think a good death for most of us probably means dying as pain-free as possible, surrounded by, by those close to us or actually or with those close to us um our loved ones um where we've had the chance to, to speak openly with them it's about being cared for being supported um and knowing that we've been treated with dignity at the end of our life with our wishes met and i think for, for most of us that's what a good death is um and it, it's a i, I think a, a way of your life coming to a close that that doesn't leave you with regrets and I think just as importantly doesn't leave the, those that are bereaved, your family and friends, thinking if only my loved one had been cared for differently, if only they'd had the chance to get their wishes met. Are you the people to come to for advice if the public want to discuss their end-of-life options? Dying Matters has got a wide range of resources that are available, many of them free of charge, to members of the public, available to download on our website, which is www.dyingmatters.org. Um, and any members of the public or organisations are very welcome to join the Dying Matters Coalition. It's free of charge to join, and if you join you get access to our resources, you find out about events we're holding, 
and we can help support you in your awareness raising activities in your own area or in part of the country. How can we better prepare people for what death is really like? I think you're absolutely right that many of us have images in our head of dying and death that often have very little basis in reality and they can come from TV and dramas and so on and, and that can be a very different picture from from actually what end of life is like and that's why Die Matters was set up really to try and make the realities around end of life more readily available for people um, and to encourage people to actually think about these and, and to think about end of life before they have to. So for example we carried out research at Die Matters into bereavement and we know from our research that around half of us have been bereaved in the last five years or so somebody very close to us has died in the last five years. Um, we also know that most of us actually think about dying pretty often. Significant numbers of us think about dying in death every week or every month. Yet despite that, most of us do have quite a, a disjointed view of what end of life can be like. I think that's unless we've actually experienced the death of somebody very close to us. And then we might have actually seen what the realities of that are like. We might have seen about the sort of care and support they need. We might have seen about the sort of dis difficult decisions that have to be made. And we might have seen quite how difficult those decisions can be um, if we have to make them or if healthcare professionals have to make them and we're having to second guess what our loved one would have wanted. But actually they hadn't made their wishes known while they still could. So that's what Dying Matters and the Death Cafe have to say. But what do you really think? You provide them with your company. I think that's all you can do. You're just there and you're, you wait to be called upon. That's all I know to do anyway. OK, but what about support for the dying? Soul midwives are non-medical, holistic companions who guide and support the dying in order to facilitate a gentle and tranquil death. My name is Felicity Warner and I'm the founder of a movement, a new movement in holistic palliative care and it's called Soul Midwives. And the idea is that we have midwives when we come into the world and we can also have them as we leave the world and Soul Midwives are really there to help ease the passage at the end of life. Every death is very different and in its own way entirely um, special to that person. So we really honour the differences that everybody has in facing death. But one of the things that we do if we have time is to sit and work out what they really would like to happen to them at the end. So they draw up a list really, um, a wish list of their end of life care. And it might be things like where they would like to die, who they would like to have with them, who they really wouldn't like to have with them. Some people say they would like to be outside in the garden. Other ones would like to be at home in their own bed with the dog at the bottom, all that sort of thing. And really that's how we begin to help them, by talking about all the different possibilities and how they might be able to achieve that. And once we know what they like, then we can help them towards it and bring up what can be really difficult conversations with people, but we try to make them easy and uh, a lot less fearful as well. I would say that a good death um, often is about helping somebody to cope with the great fear. If we can help them work with the fear that they are feeling, we can really help them come to terms and in that way to have a much better death.
you only have to look back maybe um, 60 years or so and death was done very differently. People did die at home, they did die with their loved ones around them and they did die in the midst of a family. Now, of course, people are taken off to hospital or hospices or are in care homes. So, really, um, we've brought old vigiling skills up to, um, up to the modern day. And those old skills with very simple things like sitting and holding hands, sitting and perhaps singing lullaby-type songs, um, sitting and keeping people company in the final hours, using music, uh, maybe using um, some very gentle meditations, maybe some simple prayers and blessings. I mean, these are all things that have been done throughout the world to help people to die really well, but we've somehow forgotten about them in the last 60 years. Okay, really anybody can become a soul midwife. Because we're non-medical, we don't do anything medical at all. It's all gentle companionship and holistic work. Because of that, anybody can be one. So if people are thinking that they would like to sit with the dying, they would need to come and have an introductory day with us just to check that the work really is for them. And then after that, they would do a, a very intensive but practical three-day course where they would learn all the skills, including some gentle massage and what dying is really all about, what the processes are, working with sound and also just learning how to listen and how to talk deeply. So it sounds simple and it is simple, but anybody can do it. My background originally was... Um, as a writer, I used to write about um, medicine and health, but I also uh, had a great deal of experience with different complementary therapies, and I found that I was sitting with people who were dying in order to write about them, but was becoming asked by them if I would perhaps massage them or play my singing bowls, which I love to use. And I was slipping more into therapist rather than writer. And eventually I decided that the work, sitting with people and talking to them at the end, was something that I felt really passionate about and I really wanted to do it. So I became a volunteer at a hospice and really began my learning. One of the most important things about soul midwives and what makes their work really um, useful is the fact that we, uh, we follow a model of the dying process which is really gleaned from uh, Eastern medical models, Tibetan medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, and it has the idea that we are all um, con consisted of the four elements while we are uh, alive and well, and they are of course earth, water, fire and air, and as we die we begin to lose the elements one by one. They withdraw, and as each one withdraws, we get a set of signs and symptoms which show us that that element has now gone. So as soul midwives, we sit with somebody, we will be able to see what stage they are at. And when we know what that stage is, the stage that they are at, we know how to help them best with massage or essential oils or music or whatever. But we have a very good system for seeing where somebody is at.
One of the interesting things is that when we work with most people, they have never thought about the fact that they will one day die. So um, they don't think about the choices they might want to make at the end of life. And if you can make choices about how you want it to be, for instance, where you would like to die, for instance, at home, if, if people start thinking about that, it empowers them. They begin to feel more empowered by what is happening to them because they are having, uh, they're able to make decisions, um, you know, explaining what they would like if they can. And when people become empowered, they, they lose some of their fear as well. So people write down things about, for instance, what therapies they might like at the end as well. And what, uh, who they would like to sit with them in the final hours and what they would like the room to have in. Would they like flowers? Would they like music playing? It's little things like that. But when people know they've had a decision in uh, creating that, it makes them feel a lot better about facing the end. As we live our lives, we develop um, wounds which jump out and hit us. Typically they are things like betrayal or abandonment, not feeling good enough, feeling you haven't been heard, all these sort of um, psychological problems we call soul wounds. When people are dying, these soul wounds really jump out of the cupboard and we watch for them and we wait for them and we help that person through that time because it can be very difficult. A lot of the older women we are working with at the moment, for instance, may have lost babies earlier on or had babies put up for adoption. Um, these are ladies of the age group of 75 or 85 who are really... Uh, beginning to die now and um, their soul wound might be that they um, had a baby that they still miss still grieve over so we will be there to help them through that if uh, that is becoming difficult for them as they are dying and we will try and ease that for them really the most important thing of all and it doesn't matter about doing training or not, but it is to be able to sit at the bedside and give your total attention and your total love to that person who is dying. There is no more to it than that, really. And if you are giving complete love and mindfulness, you will be really helping that person along the way. Goodness me, we've had so much feedback from families. They say it's so much easier when they've uh, had a soul midwife to help them. They don't feel they're on their own and are facing something huge. Um, they feel they have got someone who is wrapping an arm around them all the way and giving them a hug. We've had so much feedback all the time that it would be hard to sort of break it down into individual ones. But, you know, if you've had a good death a good death is very healing to the whole family. It just goes out in ripples, even to the whole community. So uh, people are beginning to realise that. And I think that's where having a soul midwife makes a huge difference. Well, don't they do fantastic work? Not just for the dying, but for those left behind.
Bereaved children need support too. Companies like Winston's Wish, Simon Says and Grief Encounter all help young children make sense of the hurt and confusion death can cause. Don't suffer alone. There are lots of companies out there who will support you and help you deal with grief. Where's the body, Sarge? Dr Fisher's taking it off. They're doing the PM this afternoon. We hear so much about post-mortems and forensics because of programmes like Silent Witness and, of course, CSI. But what is a post-mortem? Those of us with Latin understand it means after death. But what exactly does it entail? His birth was the death of him. Hi, Dr Payne. Dr Anderson. The purpose of a post-mortem is to establish as far as possible the medical cause of death and to bring out as much information as possible about the circumstance of the death. Without a post-mortem examination, the cause of the death would often remain unknown. Oh, OK. A written description of the body is made and external evidence is collected before the body is photographed, weighed and measured. Mm-hmm, I see. A rubber brick is then placed under the back of the body causing the arms and neck to fall backward while stretching and pushing the chest upward to make it easier to cut open. Ooh, vulnerable. A large deep Y, or sometimes T-shaped incision is made, starting at the top of each shoulder and running down the front of the chest all the way down to the pubic bone so that the internal organs can be removed and examined. Ouch. What did he die of? A paper cut. In the UK, following the Human Tissue Act 2004, all organs and tissue must be returned to the body unless permission is given by the family to retain any for further investigation. Normally, the internal body cavity is lined with cotton wool. The organs are then placed into a plastic bag to prevent leakage and return to the body cavity. When the autopsy is complete, the incisions can be neatly sewn up and are not noticed when the body is resting in an open casket. So, we're dead. We've been looked after by cell people. We've had an autopsy done. And what happens next? Guess what? We decompose. Hey, Wolfgang. Beethoven, baby, how's it going? Ach, slowly. Ach, no. This dust-to-dust stuff is taking ages, yeah. Uh, if only those mushroom suits from the Infinity Burial Project were around when we died, eh? Oh, yeah. They're full of the mushroom spores that speed up the body's decomposition. Yeah, and they get rid of any toxins. Oh, uh, well. Is that ein kleiner Nacht music? Backwards? Yeah. So, what are you doing? Slowly decomposing. Oh, good <laughs> God. For more information on the mushroom suit and the Infinity Burial Project, visit www.infinityburialproject.com. Our intestines contain a diversity of bacteria, uh, protozoans and nematodes. And although the body shortly after death appears fresh from the outside, these bacteria that before death were feeding on the contents of our intestine begin to break out and they start to digest the intestine itself. The stomach and eyeballs liquefy, followed by the muscular organs. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. From the moment of death, 
flies are attracted to bodies, uh, laying eggs around wounds, eyes, mouth, nose, anus and genitalia. These eggs hatch and move into the body and then within 24 hours the body can crawl with tens of thousands of maggots uh, a third of an inch long tearing the flesh with their mouth hooks and spreading oh, bacteria no, 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 God, stop, well, bacteria stop, stop. breaks down stop, stop. tissue releases fluids into body cavities and produce gases which inflate the body the foul odors that emanate from our body attract more flies beetles and mites some of whom are, are predators uh, like the uh, parasitoid wasps that lay their eggs inside the maggots makes me want to vomit our bloated body eventually collapses the skin splits moving away from the bones leaving a flattened body whose flesh has a creamy consistency the exposed parts of the body are black in color and there's a very strong smell of decay large volumes of body fluids drain into the soil providing food for other insects and mites all the remaining flesh is removed and the body dries out. It has a cheesy smell caused by butyric acid and, and this smell attracts new organisms. <sighs> the, the surface of the body that is in contact with the ground becomes covered in mould as the body ferments. Oh, the reduction in soft food makes the body less palatable to the mouth hooks of maggots and more suitable for the chewing mouth parts of beetles. The cheese fly consumes any remaining moist flesh. Totally. I mean, X, 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 X program. This the body is, is now dry and decays very slowly. Eventually, all the hair disappears, leaving the bones only. Animals which feed on hair include uh, tinnied moths and microorganisms like bacteria. Peculiar mind, God's God. Our bodies, once they begin to decay, will do so in a very offensive way. Uh, a body left exposed decomposes twice as fast as a body in water and four times as fast as a body that is buried. Is that it, then? Ooh, thank God for that. If the corpse is high, I don't know why. Why now? Who you gonna call? Tell me. Mighty far. At St. Bart's, we've developed a facility to study the decomposition of human remains. It's called the Body Farm. Over 100 people donate their bodies to the facility every year. If you want to help by donating your body, you can pre-register before you die or ask your family to donate in your stead. Help solve a crime! Solve this! Why have turned to slime? I don't know, slime! Who are you gonna call? I don't know! For more information, visit stbartsbodyfarm.org.uk. If you prefer a human body to look more alive than dead, perhaps embalming is your choice. For some strange reason, funeral directors will often describe this as a cosmetic treatment. The general public are often under the impression that embalming is a disinfecting skin treatment. It's not! It's broken! Not all funeral homes have refrigeration facilities. They cannot keep bodies cold, and so will embalm as a matter of course. Make sure before you make any decisions that you fully understand what a hygienic treatment, or to use the correct term, embalming actually entails. Few people die in the best of health, unmarked or unravaged by illness. The earlier it's done, the better. Every hour that passes between death and embalming makes good results more difficult to achieve. Rigor mortis, stiffness, 
is relieved by massage. It's rare, but sometimes tendons and muscles are cut in order to place the body in a more natural pose if limbs are distorted by disease, like arthritis, for instance. So, I've just shaved this gentleman. Even women and children are shaved to remove that fine peach fuzz we all have on our faces. It's to avoid the makeup collecting on the hair and to make it more noticeable. Now we place the facial features and the body in the final position it will be in, in the coffin for viewing. We do this before putting embalming fluid into the arteries because once formaldehyde reaches the arteries it will set. We don't want this chap too high because otherwise his nose will hit the lid when the coffin's closed. We've got to take great care to close the eyes. Quite often after death the eyes sink back into the sockets, so we put small plastic eye caps on each eyeball. It's a myth that we sew them shut, we don't. But sometimes we do glue them together so they don't open. With the mouth, we have to either tie the jaw together or we use a special gun to shoot a needle through the lower jaw, below the gums, bring it up through the upper jaw, into the nostril, through the septum of the nose, and then back down into the mouth and tie the two bits of thread together. Sometimes we put a little paste in the mouth to make the lips a better shape. So then we inject the embalming fluid into the artery. There are different shades of fluid depending on the skin tone of the deceased. You've got to be careful if they've had jaundice because the wrong colour embalming fluid can turn the corpse green. Obviously with the addition of embalming fluid there's no room for the blood anymore so that's siphoned off and flushed down the drain. There's all kinds of things you can do. Paint the teeth with clear nail varnish, reconstruct facial features, missing noses and the likes, dipple bids. Oh, can you pass me that? I've got to make this chap a false arm. Admiral Lord Nelson's body was put into a barrel of brandy to preserve it until he was able to be taken back to England. Many greener embalming fluids have been tried, but apparently nothing is as good as formaldehyde. The embalming industry is fully aware of its toxic nature, but they have to weigh this up against making sure the bodies they embalm look as good as possible. But if you opt to be embalmed, your corpse now filled with a highly toxic chemical which has been restricted by the European Union due to its carcinogenic properties is then buried in the soil. Soil, water table, rain. Embalming, controversial. The true meaning of necrophilia is getting sexual pleasure from a corpse. So for people like me, we get our erotic pleasure by just touching or fantasizing about a corpse. Sexual penetration with a corpse was made illegal under the Sexual Offences Act 2003, by the way. True necrophilia is a compulsion and it can't be helped. 
my psychologist says the theory behind it is that people affected by true necrophilia have a need to find a partner who is guaranteed not to reject them or resist them in any way. And yeah, I think that's true. Many necrophiliacs are drawn to careers that give them access to the dead. I mean, obviously, not all people who care for the dead are necrophiliacs, so hardly any, I should think. But people like me, who do suffer from necrophilia, are more likely to work in a death care industry. In ancient Egypt, the bodies of deceased beautiful women were set out to decay for three or four days before being delivered to embalmers. I mean, that was to discourage the embalmers from having a sexual interest in their charges. Can you imagine having sex with a corpse? Or a rotten corpse, come to that. Disgusting. I mean, I, I just like to look at them. Um, that's enough for me. The time just after death can be very special. It's time to take in what has happened, to just sit and be with the body and to share your memories. I spoke to Fiona and Siobhan, who decided to lay out the body of their sister, Christine, themselves, after she died peacefully at home following a long battle with cancer. Uh, laying out the body is basically you, you, you wash the body and you, you put clean clothes on. And uh, we'd been looking after our sister for almost a few weeks, I think. Yeah, she had, she had cancer, so... And for us, it just felt like a natural thing to do. Um, you know, we'd been washing her, feeding her. Yeah, and I mean, we'd done everything with her. You know, take her to the toilet. Yeah. So it was a really, it was a really nice thing to do. I think just the three of us together. You know, just mm. doing a wee. Um, just like in a really nice way of saying goodbye. I think it didn't feel frightening, did it? No, I wasn't frightened or anything. It was just really, it was really nice. Felt I think. Normal. But um, yeah, so we gave her like a bed bath and washed her with soap and water, towel dried her. Yeah, you, you did her eyebrows and um, we gave, gave her a, a, a pedicure. And it was everything you do when you have a bath yourself, you know. We just um, yeah, we just kind of looked after her. Oh, and what was that thing you liked with, with the church? And... Oh, well, yeah, she um, she loved going to church, our sister. So we had this idea of putting a little bit of holy water into the bath. And it was nice, wasn't it? Yeah, um, and we added in, she really liked lavender as well. So we got some of those oils and we put them in as well. And she, she it just, you know, she really smelled. She smelled lovely. She? Really lovely. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the other side is you've got to remember the, the, the dead. They, they, I mean, they can't control themselves anymore. So, no. when we when we like turned her over to wash her back, she was a little bit sick, wasn't she? And it, yeah. and it was obviously a bit shocking at, at the time. But then, I, I, did, well, I mean, we'd had that before with her. You know, it'd be like that when she was here. That was yeah, happening yeah, anyway. So, cancer is not exactly forgiving, is it? So, so for for us, it was just being there with her and you know mm. soothing her and, and talking to her. And oh, God. there was this time when we, we turned her over and um, oh God, she made this wee groaning noise. <laughs> it, was, it was just the air coming out of her lungs. That was all it was. But oh, I got such a fright. I know. <laughs> but, then, but then we actually we had, a, had a little laugh about it, didn't we? Yeah. We apologised to her. And just, yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, well, she had to wear this incontinence pad when, when she was alive. I so, hate um, you for saying that. I know, she will hate me, but... but so we, we popped one in as well, you know? What yeah, was it? I was like, was I'm he... not ruining that dress. <laughs> not ruining her dress. But, I mean, I think for us it just... We'd been with her, and for us it just felt... It was not normal. normal. It's it just like... really normal for us. To be continued. <laughs>